From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. After 31 days, the Oregon Legislature wrapped up its 2022 short legislative session, adjourning last Friday, a few days ahead of its constitutional deadline. I declare the 2022 regular session of the 81st Legislative Assembly is adjourned sine die. And that is the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Dan Rayfield, along with his son Adam at his side, closing out the legislature's short session. At the start of a session, Rayfield was elected Speaker, replacing Tina Kotek, who resigned to focus on her campaign for governor. Rayfield becomes the first new Speaker in nearly a decade. He was elected to the legislature in 2014, serving as co-chair of the Joint Committee on Ways and Means, the lead budget writing committee. He spent much of his time working on budget issues, becoming one of the most powerful lawmakers in the Capitol, who also has a remarkable backstory. We'll hear about that in our next segment. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Oregon House Speaker, Democratic Representative from Corvallis, Dan Rayfield. Welcome to Stray Talk, your first time here. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Speaker Rayfield, lawmakers had a, a whole host of issues to tackle in this short session, from pandemic recovery to worker protections to how to spend a surge in state revenues. If you had to give this short session a grade, what would it be? You know, I would give it probably an A minus. Uh, I think you know, I'm a kind of a perfectionist. So for me, there's always room for improvement. But I would say that any uh, time you can end a session with your, your son coming to work with you, um, that definitely ranks pretty high. I'd have to agree with you on that. Well, one of your biggest challenges, which seems like an enviable one to have, how to spend that unexpected surge of revenue. I think it was something like $2.7 billion on Oregon's biggest problems. And as you know, one of the more critical needs is how to address the state's homeless crisis and lack of affordable housing. Lawmakers passed a $400 million package to tackle that problem. How will that money be used and how will it be distributed across the state? Really good question. I think when we came into the session, we were focused on addressing some of the biggest issues that frankly, you know, all of us are seeing in our communities. And you noted that homelessness and housing is one of the top um, priorities. So we put together a group of legislators to really tackle what are the best and most meaningful and impactful ways to get this muni money into our communities. So one of the specific programs that you'll see, there was a $50 million investment into Project Turnkey. This is a proven program that with in a, I think it was a two-year period, increased shelter beds by 20% uh, in the state of Oregon. So those are the type of things that you'll see directly um, in your communities when it comes to housing and homelessness. Although obviously there's a bunch of other really great projects uh, that we invested in. And the pandemic, it really took a toll on our children and their families and many teachers are facing real burnout. What did the legislature do to try to address educational needs in the state? This was another really important area. I think as legislators, as parents, we know that kids learn best when they're in school five days a week, but we also know that our teachers, our schools are on the verge of burnout. So we really wanted to focus on how do we provide teachers with the supports, uh, focus on retention and recruitment, so that way our kids can be in school. At the same time, we also know that the way that this pandemic impacted the learning of our students had disproportionate impacts. And we wanted to continue our summer learning program 
Uh, so you see $100 million invest on this grants, recruitment, retention, streamlining our background checks for supporting of teachers in our schools. And then you'll see $150 million investment into summer programming uh, for our kids uh, as we wind up through the, I guess it would be the final months of this school year. And as we know, the cost of living is going up. Gas prices right now especially are soaring, hitting record highs. Inflation is rising, and it's hitting low-income Oregonians the hardest. What did you do to try to help there? This was something that we was a little bit of a challenge as we tried to develop, I mean, obviously in a, in a short session. I think the plan that we came up with to really um, hone in was a reimbursement program for folks that are on the EITC or qualify for EITC, Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, where we were able to put $600 uh, into folks' hands who qualify for that. Um, and we're hopeful that that is gonna get into people's uh, pockets by June, is there and I think actually June or July. And probably, Speaker, the, the most contentious bill was that bill to give Oregon farm workers overtime pay if they work more than 40 hours. And this was something supporters of this bill tried last session over the objections of Republicans who said the legislation would devastate the farm industry, possibly for small family farms to sell to larger corporations. The bill failed then, but this time it passed. What do you think made the difference and what is the significance of this bill, do you think? I think the first and foremost, I think in the legislature, we wanted to respect the work of frontline farm workers, um, where they're treated the same as every other worker in every other industry. Uh, and that's where you really found we want to do overtime for folks that earn uh, or that work more than 40 hours a week. At the same time, um, we had to acknowledge the impact to the industry. Uh, and so there was a work group and a lot of progress uh, that was made in the interim, really figuring out how do you transition this industry when other States like Washington and California are moving in this direction as well. Uh, we spent a lot of time doing listening sessions, trying to figure out what does industry need to make this transition. And you'll see in the actual program, there is what we call a refundable tax credit um, for overtime that is paid and a transition period to work down to 40 hours a week. Um, we were very fortunate um, that that was able to come together um, in the short session and we could get that off of our table so we can walk into the next session um, focused on other issues. Well, the Oregon Farm Bureau predicted the bill will deliver a death knell to Oregon's fresh fruit, vegetable and dairy industry and that many farmers will just simply reduce worker hours, move to mechanization to maybe avoid paying overtime or leave all Oregon altogether. Are you worried about that? You know, I think that when we crafted this program, uh, what we did is we put in a refundable tax credit that is meant to offset those burdens. Those are the same talking points that were being used prior to the development of the refundable tax credit. Um, and the talking points really didn't change. And for those of you that know what a refundable tax credit is, it's a one for one uh, dollar. So for um, if you have a 90% reimbursement for every dollar um, that's being paid out towards overtime, you know, in the first year for small farms, we're going to pay 90, uh, uh, 90 cents on that dollar. And so I expect the impacts to be minimal. Um, and that, frankly, was one of our biggest goals. Is how do we make sure that we support our small farms? How do we make sure that we support our dairy industry? Um, and I feel very confident that the way the program is created with also some report pack periods, we'll be able to be nimble as a legislature to make sure that those impacts aren't felt the way that some, I think, initially um, were worried that they might be felt.
Let's talk about the Democrats' relationship with Republicans this session. In the past, it's been pretty tense. There have been walkouts. Uh, you pledged to use your experience as a budget writer, which required building relationships as a way to ease that tension between the two parties. Here's a short clip from your speech on the opening day of the legislature. I believe that we are all here because we want to do good for Oregon. And it is important to me that we give the measure of grace that comes with recognizing that in all of us. How would you describe the relationship this session between the parties? I mean, and first I would talk about, you know, some of our philosophy uh, is that I believe in whether you're um, the co-chair of Ways and Means, whether you're the Speaker of the Oregon House, that responsibility lies with all 60 districts. doesn't matter how many Democrats there are. It doesn't matter how many Republicans there are. We're here to take care of the entire state, every corner. Um, and that was the approach that I tried to take in the session. Um, and frankly, this is uh, a session where we were focused on building relationships with one another, one another, building trust um, with one another throughout that session. And I feel very fortunate, uh, frankly, to have uh, Minority Leader Bree Iverson. Um, she was uh, wonderful. None of us are perfect in these roles, right? And we learned from each other and we're able to work very well with each other. Even when you know there were bills that uh, the minority didn't really want us to pass, uh, we were able to do it in a way that respected each other. Um, and in a way where we um, respected the dialogue um, and understood that we all have and shares the same values. And you surprised many of your GOP colleagues with um, an olive branch of sorts, $100 million to go toward dozens of projects in their rural districts. Why did you do that and what was the reaction? Yeah, and, and I would push back a little bit because I wouldn't call it an olive branch. Um, again, really what I believe this role is, you do take care of all four corners of the state. Um, when you look at the portfolio of things that we were going to do in this short session, uh, I think we believe that we needed a focused investment in rural Oregon. Um, and that's what this was really intended to do. Now, we could sit there as the majority partner, I'm from you know, Corvallis, and sit there and say, this is how the money should be spent. But that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to involve folks um, who are in rural Oregon, the people that represent those that frankly are not from my party so that they can make decisions on what their communities need. Um, and we weren't asking for anything in return. It was really lead with your values. Um, and frankly, you know, when you're trying to build trust, um, someone has to take that first step um, in that process. And so that was, um, you know, frankly, a, a fun thing. It was, it was one of the, the bigger highlights of the session for me was building that trust in those relationships and then, frankly, seeing that meaningful impact um, in communities across the state. Republicans did, however, have complaints about the session, and you mentioned House Republican leader Vicki Breeze Iverson. She released a, released a statement that said, in part, Oregonians needed us to tackle our state's rising cost of living, unchecked crime wave, and deteriorating education. I am proud of what Republicans accomplished this session to make life better for Oregonians across the state, but Democrats prevented us from accomplishing more. Instead, Democratic leaders blocked our additional efforts to help Oregonians while passing an eye-watering spending plan and harmful legislation we will need to fix next year. Speaker Rayfield, did Democrats overreach during this legislative session with all that spending? Absolutely not. Um, I think all of us know and see the needs in our communities when it comes to supporting our teachers and um, our schools. We did that. Um, when it comes to addressing the rising cost of living, 
we did that. Um, we, when it comes to community safety, we actually invested in programs to break the cycle of violence, proactively looking at that and also supporting, uh, you know, uh, victims of crimes, uh, VOCA grants and uh, in, in different ways uh, on the back end uh, in the community safety uh, investment portfolio. When it, when you get to the end, um, I think the thing that, and, and again, I respect Leader Breeze Iverson, but when you get to the end, we had a historic ending fund balance of $760 million. Um, that's more than when Republicans were in control. That's more than when uh, in prior cycles when Democrats were in control. On top of that, we also have reserve accounts. We have 2.7, I think when you add it all up, around $2.7 billion in reserves. Uh, we are one of the best states in the nation um, set up to weather a significant economic downturn. So I don't believe that those comments have um, a tremendous amount of merit, but I do respect um, the the leader uh, and you know her leadership within her caucus. And when you talk about an ending balance, does that go into some kind of rainy day fund? Yeah, so in Oregon, we have uh, basically what I would call three pots of money uh, that are kind of our reserve accounts. One of them is our rainy day fund, which is what you referenced, where we put about 1% of our uh, revenue into that each cycle. Uh, then we have an education stability fund really focused on making sure um, as we have a revenue and a boom and bust cycle that our um, K through 12 schools are not impacted. Um, and then we have kind of what I would say is just like our regular bank account or checking account if you're thinking of it that way. And that's when I referenced the $760 million, that's kind of just your leftover balance in the checking account, if you will, for the state. And then you have your balance in the education stability fund and then your rainy day account all of those together uh, roughly are about $2.7 billion. And we can tell that you, you dealt with budgets a lot, budget writer. Let's talk about a bill that didn't pass, and that's House Bill 4081. We have seen two Oregon teens die from fentanyl overdoses in the past week. And the Oregon Health Authority says every week an average of five Oregonians die from an opioid overdose. This bill would have required pharmacists to offer the overdose reversal medication called Narcan when they fill prescriptions for higher doses of opioids opioid painkillers, but this bill died. You would think lawmakers would want to pass that, Speaker Rayfield. Why didn't they? It was one of the bills that um, if you look at any given session, um, there's a handful of bills that don't make it over the finish line uh, that you you know would like to have seen that they get over the finish line. That is one of those. Um, I expect within the next, you know, we will be back in session uh, in 10 months. So I expect uh, within the next 10 months, you will see some significant progress on that bill. So does this have to wait until next year? The lawmaker who sponsored it isn't running for re-election. Do you think that you'll try to push for it? Uh, I think that our office, I think there will be many legislators um, that will be working to make sure that that bill passes. I also wanted to ask you about campaign contributions. In the past, you proposed creating a new system of campaign contribution limits, but that effort died two years ago, and Oregon remains one of a handful of states without any such limits, even though voters overwhelmingly approved campaign finance reform in 2020. And once again, lawmakers punted on this issue this session. Why? What, what is stopping this from happening? 
Really good question. And this is something that, uh, frankly, was what got me involved in politics when I was 19 years old. I stood outside of a, um, a Safeway gathering signatures to put campaign finance reform um, on the ballot. Um, I genuinely believe uh, that you know when you reform uh, our structures of government, you get better results down the road. And I think reducing the impact of money in politics is critically important. In 19, we passed a host of four bills out of the House, one of them dying in the Senate which was campaign finance limits. Uh, in 21, we again ran a work group of over 50, led, uh, 50 uh, stakeholders trying to find that sweet spot. And in campaign finance reform, you have 90 legislators and all 90 of them have a different opinion about what that campaign finance reform system should look like. Uh, we then started to get momentum frankly, uh, at the ballot. And I was expecting in the fall um, that there would be a ballot measure. Mid-session, we learned uh, that there were some technical difficulties, apparently, and I haven't fully read some of the, the legal opinions on that, and that those ballot measures would not be moving forward. So we were kind of caught flat-footed in the middle of the session. Additionally, what I would say is in a 35-day short session, it's extremely difficult um, to try and thread the needle on campaign finance reform. And so if this is not on the ballot in the fall, uh, you better believe that uh, our office, myself personally, will be uh, working to get that done in the 23 legislative session. So look for it next year. Thank you, Speaker Rayfield. It's time for us to take a break, but Speaker Rayfield has a remarkable story of resilience from a childhood where he was abused, arrested as a teen, to becoming one of the most influential political leaders in Oregon. So I drank. I experimented with drugs when I should have been focused on school. And during this deeply painful period in my life, I was arrested four times for things like a DUI, reckless endangerment, criminal mischief. And when I got to college, I did even worse. We'll hear more of Speaker Rayfield's story in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking with the new Speaker of the Oregon House, Dan Rayfield. On his first day as Speaker on February 1st, he gave a candid speech about his goals, what motivates him, and the childhood that informed who he is today. Here's a clip. There are so many Oregonians that find themselves where I was two decades ago. I stand before you as someone who has been in that dark place, who has been called dumb and stupid by members of his own family, but I also stand before you as living proof that the worst moment of our lives doesn't have to be our destiny. Welcome once again to Oregon Speaker of the House, Representative Dan Rayfield. Speaker Rayfield, once again, thank you for being here. And I, I just wonder, how were you able to make such a big turnaround in your life from the childhood you described to becoming Speaker of the House? It's a really good question. Um, and frankly, sometimes watching uh, that speech um, is, is difficult. The, for me, you know, I think there was sets of failures after failures after failures in my life where you start to believe that internally that you are in, indeed a failure. I think I, and I, I joke and I, that um, one of the, I think, moments that turn uh, my life around when I was fired as a Jungle Cruise skipper uh, at Walt Disney World for uh, telling really bad jokes. Um, there is some truth to that. Um, I, you know, and when I went back, um, for me, the, the big turning point was trying to go to community college. Um, 
Um, and there was a period where, um, yeah, I remember sitting with my mom um, and, you know, in tears, not knowing if I was going to be able to pass a single class. Um, and it was those slow steps, you know, it was passing three classes with C's. And, you know, my first four point came uh, in a community college class um, after I had already, frankly, flunked out of college um, the first time. Uh, and it was, you know, there was a, a professor, a geography professor that, frankly, um, I just connected with. It was just a human being um, and someone that just kind of. Uh, helped me build my own internal confidence um, and kind of see different things. And, it, and it's nothing is ever a straight path, right? You take two steps forward, you take a step back. Um, but it was slowly through there. It's why I got a geography degree, um, of all things. So why very did, fortunate with the people that I've had in my life. Why did you decide to share your story with your fellow lawmakers that day? I... For me, it's just who you are. Um, and when I walk into this space, you either accept people for who they are, um, all the good, all the bad. Um, I think in politics too often, we have facades up um, about who we are as people. Um, I think when you lead with your values, when you lead with who you are, people understand um, your background. Um, it's easier to work with folks. It's easier to trust people. Um, I also really believe um, what I said is that your worst moments don't have to define who you are. Um, some of my best experiences as being a legislator is telling my story to students uh, and you know seeing their reaction because frankly, you know, I'm not alone and they're not alone. Um, and that has provided an immense amount of value to me to see other um, students, other kids, um, as they try and move forward uh, in their own lives. And did I hear your mom was there for that speech? She was, she was. Uh, her, my son, and my dad uh, were all uh, in the back, so. Well, they must be so proud of you. You know, you also said you realized had you been a person of color, you probably would have had a different experience with the justice system. Yeah, it, I, you know, and, and I was mentioned in one of those clips, you know, I was arrested, uh, I think over a period of time, about four times. Uh, one of the times was for four counts of reckless endangerment, four counts of criminal mischief uh, when I was um, 18 at the time. And I remembered when I was a legislator, and I think it was within the first two years of being a legislator, I saw uh, someone in the Oregonian that almost had uh, what felt to be very similar or identical um, things that I had been charged with as a youth. Um, and this person was also a youth and they were treated vastly different um, in the outcomes. Uh, and that's where looking at that to me, um, it was really apparent. Like, you know these things internally, but then when you see it in a news article, um, it's it really hits home um, and you feel very um, you're fortunate, but then you're also very committed to like, hey, the system is broken. Um, how do you have a system that doesn't have treat people with such drastic disparities? And, and we only have a few minutes left, but what do you want to see passed in the way of racial justice reform uh, in the coming session? So I think for me, uh, you know, we have put together really strong leaders um, in, frankly, in our judiciary. And so that would be Representative Janelle Bynum. Um, we have a whole host of folks um, that are working on that next set of reforms. We've been doing a lot of good stuff so far. Um, and in fact, this last session, there was Senate Bill 1510 
which really looked at uh, preventing uh, um, you know, kind of the profiling where you're pulling people over for minor traffic infractions. Um, and it's these small steps that we continue to take to really address these. And so as we move towards the 23 session, our office, as well as with our legislative leaders like Representative Bynum, uh, will hopefully work towards another package to continue uh, reforming our criminal justice system. And about a minute left, Speaker, for a final thought you might want to share with our viewers. You, the, the one thing that I you know, love to talk with people about is that your state legislature is extremely accessible. And I talk about this in all of my forums. If you call your state legislator, um, you can sit down and have coffee with them. Um, a lot of some of the ideas that you, we passed were facilitators of good ideas. Uh, one of my favorite stories is we had um, a young woman from a, uh, the high school here that came in and met with me at a coffee shop and had probably one of the best proposals um, that I've seen better than some legislators. Uh, and we were able to facilitate and pass legislation because all of us have a different lens. I'm an attorney. Um, there are folks that are teachers, um, but we're really doing this all together as a community. So reach out to your legislators, get to know them. When they know you on a first name basis, um, that means that they're gonna better represent you. That means that they're more in touch with their community. And just understanding that we are very accessible folks um, and that we're here and we share a lot of the same values. Well, Speaker Rayfield, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you for watching. Join us next week when we dig into why Intel decided to make its $20 billion expansion in Ohio, not Oregon, and what Oregon and Southwest Washington are doing to land the next big investment. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week.